in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, chapter number 2. Revelation chapter number 2. Before we get into um, our study this evening, let's just pause for a word of prayer, shall we? Ask the Lord to bless us, open our hearts and our minds to his holy revealed word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your presence, your grace, your love. Lord, we could go on and on. Um, But Lord, we thank you that you have indeed revealed your word to us and that we can study these things. And Lord, as we look into this book that is often forgotten, set aside, and Lord, we know that there are blessings in this book, there are blessings for those that read it, and help us, Lord, to understand it. And Lord, I pray that you would indeed bless us as a body uh, with your word, that we might be encouraged. And Lord, as we look into the seven churches uh, of the book of Revelation, we would be mindful, Lord, of their mistakes. We would be mindful of, uh, Lord, their victories. And, Lord, we would learn to apply in our context uh, the things that you have commanded to these churches in way of correction. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, I pray you would use me this evening. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, I said to you, didn't I, that the, the outline for the book of Revelation is found in the book of Revelation. And actually, as you go through the book of Revelation, um, a lot of the interpretation of the symbols and, and signs are t- interpreted within the book of Revelation. Um, but verse 19 of chapter 1 gives us the, the nice outline, the things which they have seen, the things which are, and the things which will be hereafter. And we looked last week and the, and the previous week at the things which they have seen. And if you remember, that was the revelation or the unveiling or the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the, the book of Revelation, and I've told you to scrub this out in your Bible if you have it, it's not the, the, uh, the, the revelation of St. John the Divine or whatever it may be. Scrap that out. It's the revelation of Christ. It's the unveiling. That word revelation, the Greek apocalypto, it is literally the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory, in his majesty as the common king. And those were the things which they have seen and John has written them and we've uh, read them and we've studied them and we've looked and seen that wonderful, majestic saviour who is in the midst of the seven churches. He is the preeminent one and so he should be. Now we're going to look at the things which are and that takes us to chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Revelation. And then, once we've done that, we'll look at the things which shall be hereafter, which is is from chapter 4 all the way on to the end of the book, which is the largest portion of the book. You know, it's over two-thirds, isn't it, really? And that's uh, what we absolutely stand upon in this church, is yet future. So we take the futurist approach, that everything from Revelation chapter 4 onwards are the things which shall be hereafter, and that hereafter has not yet come. So we stand, as we teach in this church, we stand as what we call the church age. And the prophets in the Old Testament did not see the church age. They didn't see it because they were kingdom-focused, Israel kingdom, earthly-focused. And the prophets foretold of that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter number 9. Again, familiar, but we turn there. 
So for the, the Old Testament prophets, uh, you know, in their understanding certainly, the first and second comings were not distinct events. Look at Isaiah. So this is what we call the peaks of prophecy. Now the, the prophets of the Old Testament, they just seen the mountaintops, if you like. They couldn't see what was in the valley. And what they, as you read here in Isaiah uh, 9, verse 6, or under us a child is born, under us a son is given, and put a little comma in there, whatever you want, and then it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And that's what they seen. They seen the Lord that would come, the Messiah that would come to rule and reign from his earthly throne in Jerusalem. To them, it was, it was one event. But what happened between our little comma, you know, we're the comma. The church age is the comma. For under us a child is born, under us a son is given. That's the first coming. And comma, Christ was rejected. The kingdom was rejected. It was postponed, not cancelled, postponed. God's program with Israel was put on hold and the church age began. And we are in this valley between these two pigs of the first coming and the second coming, or the child is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders. They're the pigs. The church is in the valley. And what we're going to deal with in uh, Revelation chapter number 2 is the church age uh, as a whole. And, and we'll see how um, it goes. We'll see how it parallels the, the church history. We'll have a look at that. Um, we'll see how it correlates with Matthew 13 as we go down through there. But just, just to say and just to start without getting into too much, let's just bring up uh, the little map there. There's our churches, um, the seven churches of Asia Minor. So we have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. I fixed that projector. I literally fixed that projector. How long has that been doing that? Just, I fixed that thing. It'll not beat me. Honestly, it won't. Right. Okay, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get back quickly to... Yeah, it's bizarre. Anyway, so that's your, that's your seven churches uh, of Asia Minor. Now, um, there's three views of these churches, and th this is what we're going to try and cover as we go through these churches. The first aspect of these churches, as we read, we have to understand that they were historical, physical churches. They were actual assemblies. We talked about the local assembly this morning. These were local assemblies. These were real churches. Okay, So they weren't mythical, mystical. They were real churches, real people. And Christ is writing onto them and they would have received this uh, letter, the revelation, and it would have been read to them and they would have received it. And actually, as you looked at the churches, I don't want to go back to the, the screen too much because it's flickering, but if you see the ark, that's how the, the, almost the postal route of Asia Minor would have been along the trade roads from city to city. So Ephesus would have got the letter first, and then it would have went on and on and round and down. So the first aspect, as we consider these churches, is that they were real churches that had real people uh, once upon a time in history. The second aspect as we consider these seven churches and what Christ writes about them is, is the spiritual aspect. 
Each and every uh, portion that's written to a church deals with some spiritual condition within the church uh, culture, within the local assembly, within the hearts of the people. So there's a, there's a physical, practical element. They were real people, but real people suffer from real problems. And uh, when we're dealing with the church, we're dealing with the spiritual ones. And that's what we'll see. And, and this can apply to any congregation any uh, assembly, at any point, at any time, in any place in the church age. So we, we can't apply some of the stuff that's talked about in terms of the physical locality of those churches, and we'll see how the Lord uses things that, that we're familiar with them. We'll see that with Laodicea and the lukewarm and hot and cold and stuff. We don't have, have that, but we can take and apply the spiritual conditions across the entirety of the church age. And some churches can suffer from all seven of these conditions. Some of them can have none or one or two or whatever. But it, the Lord highlights some issues that can get in to the local church. And then the third aspect. Now, I'm dogmatic on the first two aspects. I'm not as dogmatic on this third aspect. But I do think it fits. That it, the church is as Christ speaks about them. You can correlate them with the entirety of church history. Almost a panorama of church history. Beginning with the apostolic church. Going through the early church. To the you know, uh, Roman Catholicism. To the Reformation. Uh, to the missionary church. And then to the church of the last days. And you can see I believe uh, a picture of, of the entirety of church history. Now that's not a hill I would die on. But I do think it fits. And I think we have to be cautious when we approach the book of Revelation. When I see things that I think fit, I'll say I think these fit. When I see things that are dogmatically clear, I'll, I'll make a dogmatic stand on it. There's other things that I won't. And I'll allow you to go and look at it yourself and make your own mind up. So there's things that I'll, I'll, I'll fight for. And there's things that I think, well, that's nice. It's good. And it, and it looks like it fits. But... I'm less certain of that than I am of some other stuff. And I think that's a, a fair way to approach the book of Revelation. I think sometimes we get into the book of Revelation and we can be too dogmatic on things that it's hard to be dogmatic about. So we've got to be clear on that and we will as we go. So that's the kind of three aspects that we're going to have a look at as we, we look at the churches. The historical, the spiritual and the, the prophetic aspect as we see the entirety of church history being pan out. So... We're going to deal with Ephesus first. And Ephesus was a drifting church. Now, Ephesus was the capital of that area of Asia Minor. It was a, a leading seaport. The Isle of Patmos, where John was exiled, where, where he had this revelation, uh, is, is off the coast of it. If I could go back to my map, uh, you would have seen that there, so not too far away. And uh, Ephesus was a pretty important place in that area. So it, it was a... Uh, it was a desired place, and that's what the name Ephesus means when you get to the, the, the translation of it. It means desired. And um, the church of Ephesus had a, very, uh, had a place uh, for Paul and his heart. He ministered there three years. Acts chapter 20, verse 31 will say that he, uh, by the space of three years, he ceased not to warn everyone day and night with tears. So Paul had had an influence on this church. Uh, Timothy. Apparently, they say, also served as a pastor uh, before his exile to the Isle of Patmos. They say that John was an, a, a pastor here uh, at this church. He was one of the leaders of the church. And if Ephesus is going to represent the church period, as we said from start to finish, it represents the apostolic church and the, the uh, early church, if you like. 
And uh, the apostolic church, so really the beginnings of the church, was, was, was a time that was marked by fervent evangelism. It was a time marked by fervent evangelism. And the gospel was preached throughout the entirety of the known world. We'll see that time and time again in Paul's writings. So uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 10, verse 18. We did a little bit of this, I think, when we were covering dispensationalism. But Romans chapter 10, verse 18, Paul says this, But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words into the end of the world. Chapter 16 of Romans, verse 26. Romans 16, verse 26. But now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. Onwards to Colossians, please. Colossians 1, verse 6. Again, Paul writing. Is this which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it do also in you, since ye, the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. This is the gospel of grace, which is part of the church age. Dispensation has gone out into the entirety of the known world. Uh, verse 23 of Colossians 1. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, wherefore I, Paul, am made a minister. So the apostolic church, the very first church, if you like, the early church, was marked with evangelism. They went out and they preached the gospel because that's what their master, their Lord, had told them to do. And that's what they did. And they did it well. They did it well. So the early church, the apostolic church, if you look at what the, what the, the, the percentage cut was in terms of uh, Jew and Gentile, in the early church, it's heavily Jewish. It's heavily Jewish. Now, there are Gentiles that come into this, but the, the evangelism that goes out originally from Jerusalem is by the church at Jerusalem, and they are spread out by the diaspora, they are chased out, they are persecuted out, and the gospel goes out. But the point of the matter is that it's a Jewish-led evangelistic campaign that has this success. And that's the, the early church. But if you go to the church today, it's very heavily Gentile, very little Jew, very heavily Gentile. And instead of being marked with evangelistic fervor, it's marked with apostasy and apathy. And actually, when you look into Scripture, and we'll see this in the book of Revelation, there is a time where there will be another push of the gospel. There will be a push uh, across all the nations. And this push will be achieved not by Gentiles, but by Jews. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, says the gospel will go out into all the world and then the end will come. That is not a church-led thing. It is a, a Jewish-led thing. Uh, Revelation, turn to Revelation chapter number 7, verse 9. This is the 144,000, which are real people from real tribes of Israel, because that's what the text says. 
Revelation 7 verse 9, After this I beheld and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, and clothed with ripe robes and palms in their hand. There is a great evangelistic campaign coming, where, where the gospel will go out again to the world, and many will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But it will not be led by the church. This worldwide revival that, that we're looking for and people in certain circles and uh, are, are hoping for that will usher in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church. I don't see that in Scripture. I see a, a decline in Scripture. I see the, uh, 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 the letters in the New Testament tell us of that time and time again that there is a slide as we enter into the last days. And we're going to see that in, in Revelation chapter number 2. But actually, when the church is raptured, the church is taken away, wherever point you think that happens, the 144,000 that are marked by God, sealed by God, are Jewish. And when the Jews get right with God, their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they see things that we don't see, and the things from the Old Testament where Christ was promised and foreshadowed and pictured, their heritage, their traditions, everything they are in their identity is suddenly completed. You see a, a person on fire for the Lord like you'll never see. There's just something unique about it. And when they come to know their Lord and Savior, when they're sealed by God and sent out by God, there is this great message of revival that goes out as the message is preached. But that's not in the church age. That's for the Jews during the tribulation period. Now, getting back to the church of Ephesus, I want you to see before we get into our, our study properly that Christ introduces himself, and he'll do this in every church that he writes to. And when he introduces himself, he will go back and he will refer to some aspect of his revealed self that was revealed to John in Revelation chapter number 1. So verse 1 of Revelation 2 says this, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, and we looked at that a few weeks ago, and I believe that is just the pastors of the churches. I don't believe it's actually angels. Uh, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. So again, we remember that? from Revelation chapter number 1, where Christ revealed himself, and he is the one who is the preeminent one. He's the authoritative one. He's the one in, in the midst, and that just means everything is around him, radiates from him. He is the very centerpiece of it all. And this is how he introduces himself to this church and then to any church that follows as the very uh, God of all, Lord of all, above all. And he simply says, I am the Christ. I am the head of the body. Hear what I have to say. So we want to hear what Christ has to say to this church. And remember, as we read this, we're sitting here as a local assembly. And I'm going to read and and expound this to you. But uh, many years ago, there was a local assembly that were ready to hear this and hear from the word of God what the Lord was saying. Quick, turn that off or throw you out. Are you all right? You made it by about two seconds. I'm <laughs> joking, I'm joking, I'm joking. Uh, so they were waiting and they, they were ready to hear this letter that had been penned by the apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and they had gathered at Ephesus to hear this read to them for the very first time. And that's how you have to picture what's going on here because that's the interpretation. 
So just imagine that you've never heard this before and we're the church at Ephesus. Here's what Christ says to the church. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how they cannot spare evil them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast had patience for my name's sake hast labored and not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left my first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give unto give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the church would have heard those words that we've just read for the very first time, knowing that it was from their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what does he say to them? Well, he says a few things. Firstly, he has a word of commendation, and that's in verses 2 and 3. And the Lord says this, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. He says, I know, I know. And sometimes, just remembering that the Lord knows is a comfort to us. As we go about his business and we go about his work, knowing that the Lord says that of Milton Baptist Church and any other church, I know your works. Sometimes we do things and we, we, we work for the Lord and it seems like there's no fruit. Or we, you know, just put hours and hours into something. And, you know, it's, nobody sees it. Nobody acknowledges it. You know, um, little things, big things, whatever it may be. And, and, and sometimes that, because we're human and we're, we just have uh, sin within us still and we're flesh and blood and we still have the old nature, we're like, can't believe it nobody even said it took me ages and nobody even noticed and people can be like that people can be cruel uh, Christians included <laughs> but the Lord says I know I know that thing you did that nobody's seen I seen it and I know you did it for me I know your work and it's beautiful to know that, that the Lord knows, and he never misses. He never doesn't see, and that's a beautiful thought. It's also a very frightening thought. It's also a very frightening thought, because the Lord knows your works. That's good works, and your bad works. The little thing that you, you've done in church for God's glory that nobody's seen, the Lord's seen, and thanks be to him for that. But the sin that you commit in the hidden places, in the high places in your life, the Lord sees that. And he says, I know thy works. You know, it's an amazingly powerful, reassuring thing to know we have a sovereign, all-knowing, all-seeing, all-present God but also it's a very sober thought that we manage in our sinful human states and we've all done this 
is that we, <laughs> and you know, I'm being honest here because you know I do this too. Is that you somehow think that you've got a switch that you can flick that can turn God's deity off? Ha ha! You won't be able to see me now. I can do what I want. Flick it back on when you're feeling down. Oh God, I'm glad you're with me. Now I want to do something you don't approve of. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. But for this church, the Lord commands them. He says, I know thy works. And look at the, the types of labor. He says, I know your labor, your toil, your trouble, uh, your patience and how that's needed in ministry. Absolutely it is. In the life of a church, they need to be patient. Notice that um, you know he commands them on their doctrine. They cannot spare them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and not. What's that? They're false teachers. And the Lord is commanding this church for that. He says, I know your works. You know, the rest of the world around you may be laughing at you or mocking you and saying, oh, Bible bashers, oh, this or that. And we may get that in this church. But here's the truth of it. If we stay to the word of God and we call out false teachers and we mark out false teachers, I believe the Lord will see those works and he will command those works. He'll command them. So what he says to the church. Verse 3, has borne, has patience, for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. And notice, for my name's sake. You've done it for my name, which is the right work in the right way. And he says, you haven't fainted, you've, you've stuck in there. And they, they, they had, and they were good as a church. And, you know, you think about Acts chapter 19 and what was going on at Ephesus with Demetrius, how he was making all these trinkets because Diana was the god that was worshipping Ephesus and they had a big statue of her and they had a big temple for her and of course the gospel comes in and it just tears idolatry to bits with the truth of the word of God and, and these that made merchandise out of the pagan religion, just as people make merchandise out of the gospel, were being put out of action. You know, the church at Ephesus was doing a good work. They were doing a healthy work and everything looked good from an external point of view as you looked upon this church everything looked good they were a servant church they were a sacrificing church and they were a steadfast church and from the outside this looked like the perfect church looked like the perfect church because we're led by what we see on the outside that's just how we function but God operates in a different realm God operates at heart level. Heart level. He knows the works. These were just the outworks of the works. Because the work was done in the heart as the church of, of God gave over to God, led by the Spirit of God, to do the work of God. And that's what God sees. And when that's right, the work's right. So for us, looking at this church, great fine the external looked okay but god like i said sees the heart remember addison when she was going through her little uh note writing stage uh, thankfully she stopped this but she you know where you'd find anywhere you went in the house you'd find a little note written by her some very encouraging some were very uh humbling <laughs> uh so one of them particularly after she got shouted at for something and, uh, you know, one of, one of the poor things about being a, a, a kid of a preacher is that, you know, preachers tend to have loud voices. So when they shout, they don't realize how loud it is or whatever. Anyway, 
So she, you know, she was upset at this, and I went upstairs and found a little note on my pillow. And this, she, honestly, that girl, she, <laughs> she, I felt like she had an hour more because she she cut me to the heart with this note. <laughs> but this little note said, uh, "Dad, don't shout at me. It makes me uh, think you don't love me." I know what a little pig. <laughs> what a little pig. So I was like, oh, <laughs> pick me up, pick me up. And, you know, I'm like, what? in my mind, I'm going, how dare she? Of course I love her. I'm doing anything for her. But what's going on? She's looking at the external, not the internal. The external was she was getting shouted at, chastised. But the internal was I loved her as much when I was chastising her when she was on her best behavior. And that's what God sees. He sees the inside. And, and this church would have looked fine. And, and, and the reality was Christ seen something that many of us wouldn't in that church. Because in verse 4, we have the condemnation. Nevertheless. Now, mark that little word. Put your mind to the church at that time hearing this for the first time because they haven't got the privilege of being able to look ahead it's just been read to them and they were sitting there and I'm sure that they were puffed up I mean who wouldn't want to hear you know if Christ would make an appearance now and give a report on Milton Baptist Church if he said all these things about us we would be well pleased amen we would and as we are well pleased and I'm sure the people of Ephesus were you know, well, nice, that's good. Are we done? Time to go. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I have something against you. Now, notice the personal pronoun. This is Christ. I have something somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. So, you know, and the hallmarks and the face of it, this church was a fantastic church. But, but, as often, and this happens unfortunately a lot in churches that do hold sound doctrine, is that they forget that sound doctrine alone is not you know, enough. That doctrine must produce application, otherwise it's dead. And sound doctrine should pre- present sound believers, and sound believers should love. They should love. You know, great workers at Ephesus, you know, great doctrine, getting after the false teachers, but they were forgetting. And they were so busy maintaining their separation that they forgot their adoration. And that can creep in, and it has crept in to many churches. And ultimately, as we'll see, the Lord has removed the light from those churches. Labor is no substitute for love. Now, we, we don't want to go to the other extreme, where it's all love and no labor. But those two, they're, they're not separate things. They are one thing for the believer and for the church of God. Oswald Chambers said this, Whenever success is made the motive of service, infidelity to our Lord is the inevitable result. And the church at Ephesus, you know, it looks successful. But something had drifted. Something had drifted. What had drifted? Their love. Their first love. The Lord Jesus Christ. And what a stinging condemnation that was. 
to the church that uh, you know, had the name Desire, to the church that was doing uh, most of the thing, to the church that had been pastored by the apostle of love. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, you've left me. You've drifted. The honeymoon period was over almost. And, and, and as we think about ourselves, you know, as believers in this world, we were guilty of this. Tell you now, we're all guilty of this. Because when we get saved, truly saved, it's a game changer, isn't it? It's a life changer. And our love for the Lord and our devotion to the Lord at that point should be on point. But what happens? We drift. We're doing the right things. We're still about the Lord's work, but we're drifting and we're drifting. And we're drifting. And then we look back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And the Lord's warning of this danger. He says, you know, you've done a lot of good, but you've left your first love. Now, the Lord doesn't leave them there. You know, he's brought them and they must have been built up and felt good with uh, all that they've been commended for. But then when the Lord condemns them, I'm sure that, you know, it's like putting a, a pin in a, in a balloon They've been deflated, but the Lord doesn't leave them there. Because he gives them correction. Look at verse 5. Here's the correction. Remember from whence they are fallen, repent, do the first works. Three things that the Lord says. You want to fix this? This is what you do. Number one, remember. Remember what it was like. The day and the moment you get saved. Remember how you loved me at the first. Think upon that. Think about the joy of your salvation. Think about how it was when you knew that your sins were forgiven, that you'd come to Calvary's cross with the burdens and baggage of the world upon your shoulders, and you had asked the Lord Jesus Christ and said, there's nothing I can do to save myself. I am helplessly lost without you. Save me, Lord. Save me, Lord. Save me. And he reaches down and he saves you. And the weight's lifted and you understand who you are, your purpose, your place, where you're heading. Everything becomes complete, makes sense. Your life now has logic to it, has purpose to it. You have a saviour that you serve. Your sins have been forgiven. Your love for him is immense. And Jesus says, remember that. Remember that. And think about where you are now. He says, remember that. Second point, repent. Repent, just turn. Look at where you were. Look at where you are. Understand that I'm there. I haven't moved. You've drifted. I haven't. Repent. Change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. Turn to the Lord. Be determined, confess, and then finally, the Lord says, do the first works. Reset. Get back to basics. What are the first works? How could we define the first works? Uh, Matthew 24, uh, 22. Here's the first works. You want to simplify it? Matthew 22. Verse 34. 
Matthew 22, verse 34, when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them asked, which was a lawyer, asking him a question, tempting him, saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You want to know what the first works are? Love God with everything, and as a result of that, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the basics. God first, give him all, and as a result of that, love others. Well, your neighbor. You want to know who your neighbor is? Look to your left. Look to your right. Look behind you. Front of you. You'll find yourself your neighbor in the local body of Christ context we're talking about. We're to love others as we would want to be loved. And that's sacrificial. That's sacrificial. That's what the Lord says. Just get back to basics. Remember where you came from. Repent and get back to just simple service. Loving me and loving others. God first and from that flows a love from others that only God can give. That's what he says. Then there's a challenge. In verses 5 and 6, tail end. This comes after the correction. So Christ gives the correction, but then he says, or else, this is verse 5, middle of Revelation 2, verse 5, or else I will come on to thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So notice that the, the Lord says about the church of Ephesus, you know, here's the correction, but if you don't follow my course of action, if you don't go about getting back to me as I've commanded you to do and given you the way to do it, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come and I'm going to remove the light. I am going to come quickly and I'm going to remove thy candlestick, that is the picture of the church's light, out of the place except that you repent, except that you do this. So in spite of its great privilege, because Ephesus was a privileged church, think about the, 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 the leadership they had. They were a privileged church. The Lord was writing to them. But despite of all their privileges, the Lord is a respecter of no persons. And he says, if you don't sort it out, I will take the light from this church. Wearsby says this about this. He says, the church that loses its love will soon lose its light, no matter how doctrinally sound it may be. And I think that's wise words. A church that loses its love will soon lose its light, no matter how soundly doctrinal they are. So if churches continue to be doctrinally sound, but show no love, show application of that, then the Lord will come and he will take the light. And, and we've seen that over the generations, over the years. Many churches have lost their light. And you could point to them and say, well, they were doctrinally on the same page. They were sound doctrinally. What's happened? They've lost their light. Oh, well, people just didn't come. Listen, it's the Lord that builds the church. God's people just need to be faithful in all things. It's the Lord that builds the church. But it's the Lord that builds it. It's the Lord that can take the light away. And when the Lord takes the light away, it's done. It's done. And the Lord says, I'll come back quickly if you don't sort it out. He also goes on and speaks about the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You don't know too much about who the Nicolaitans were. Possibly um, 
Nicholas from Acts 6.5, who he knows, but it's said that these people uh, were those that were uh, into controlling the people. Um, the, the word Nicolaitans itself is, is a transliteration of two Greek words that mean conquer and the people. So it's said that whoever these group were, they were a very, uh, um, uh, like a, a, a clergy and laity split, lording over the people. And also it's written um, by um, some different commentators. Uh, Arrhenius, who wrote about them, said that they were indulged the flesh and they were very... Um, uh, practice fornication and, and all that sort of stuff but that was what they did but then they had the people under control so very much a, a clarity lady uh, uh, type of environment and the Lord absolutely rejects that he says he hates it so that's very strong from the Lord Jesus and, and we shouldn't fall into that it should never be a them and us and we shouldn't get into that we're one body with one head the Lord Jesus Christ um, so then for seven there's some comfort that comes I'm getting to the end now. Verse 7. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit say unto the churches. To him that overcometh, I will give unto thee to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the par- uh, paradise of God. So here we're going to deal with overcomers. Who are the overcomers? Well, Scripture tells us, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. You want to know who an overcomer is? For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you're a believer here tonight, you're an overcomer. Not in, the, in anything you've done, but in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. And you have these promises that you will eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And this promise, and it is a promise, is backed by a great person, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this promise involves a great place. And uh, we are certainly going to a great place as those that have been promised by God and saved by God and sanctified and set apart by God. So as we wrap this up, and our time is running short, so I do want to wrap this up. Um, As we think about the, the church of Ephesus, it was a drifting church. And this church, as I've said, it was a historical church, a real church, real believers. They would have heard this read to them for the very first time and and, and no doubt would have been convicted to the core at the words of their master to that, that church. We have the prophetic side of it and we say that this church pictures the early church, the apostolic church. Um, but I want to focus in on the spiritual condition because that's where the application is. Uh, this church was a drifting church. You know, a second generation had come in and, and their love of Christ had drifted. It had drifted. And, you know, you go to Ephesus now, you'll see nothing but ruins. What does that mean? It means that they didn't get it right. They didn't follow what the Lord said. And he'd removed the light. And, and Ephesus is rubble now. It's rubble. And we, you know, we can go up and down our land and, and, and see churches that one day would have had an amazing evangelical witness, would have been powerhouses for the gospel, that are now gyms, snooker halls, houses. What's happened? The light's been removed because they've drifted. And rather than uh, checking the drift while it can be corrected, They've let it go on and on. And if you know, you know, you know what drifting's like. If you, you know, you go to the seaside and you, you lie and you can drift and, and you close your eyes and da 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 da. And next thing you look up and you're 
you're a dialer, wait. But, you know, the longer you leave the drift, the harder it is to get back. The harder it is to get back. And many churches have had their light removed because they've drifted. So here's what we're to learn from this. Here's the application. We don't want to be a drifting church. We don't want to be a drifting church. So what do we do? What do we do to, to stop that? Well, number one, there's an individual responsibility for each and every member of the body of Christ to examine themselves to see if you're drifting. Because here's the thing. If we all come in here as drifters, not the singing drifters, Ben, I know you do like him, but we all come in as drifters, then guess what? The church is going to drift. But if we all carry our walks circumspectly and, and check our own lives, then we come into the body and we're more secure as the body from, from drifting. So we're in this together. You know, that's, the, that's what the church is. It's a body. And we have to function together. So we have to just keep short accounts with ourselves. Keep ourselves in the word of God. Keep ourselves together as the body of Christ. Be able to come and share whenever we're struggling. Because struggling in silence will allow you to drift away. And that's what the enemy wants. You know, you're struggling with your faith. You're struggling with, uh, you know, just generally your walk with the Lord. The, the enemy wants you to keep that to yourself. And come into church and pretend like everything's okay. But the Lord knows. He knows. And he has put you in a body of people, of believers, to be able to say, you know, I'm not doing great today. Or, you know, will you speak to me? Will you help me? Come alongside me. Is there anybody else that's struggling with this or whatever? And then we can get back on course together. So we have to do it together. We have to do it as a church. But ultimately, we have to do it in a way that puts... Christ first. We have to learn to love him the way we loved him at the start and allow that love to develop and manifest itself into us taking our theology and putting it into practice and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And when we do that, we'll be a church that stops any drift that may come in because Ephesus was a drifting church and ultimately they didn't correct and therefore the Lord took the light away. And now it's a dead church. And we don't want that for here. So let's keep short accounts with the Lord. Remember what it was like when he saved us. And get back to where we were. And then we'll be the church that God wants us to be. Let's pray.